0: Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start reading in verse 3. Actually, I'll just read from verse 1 all the way through verse 11. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this for what it is, your word. Your word, not only to the Hebrew Christians of the first century, but to the church in every age. May we understand by your spirit what is being said here. May we learn to endure by faith, through suffering, through persecution. May we be readied for that by the working of your spirit as we look together at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we often have unbiblical assumptions, unbiblical assumptions about persecution and suffering in the church. And I really want to just mention four of those and look at some texts that have to do with that. I could nuance these differently and maybe extend them out a bit more or add to it, but I'm just going to give you four really brief ones. First, one of our unbiblical assumptions about suffering and persecution I want to call a kind of soft prosperity gospel. When I say a prosperity gospel, I mean this gospel that God loves you, therefore he wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's a sort of strong or hard prosperity gospel that's out there, and it is completely false. But I want to talk about a softer version of the prosperity gospel. Here's how it shows up. I've heard it a lot lately. If the church was faithful to the Lord, then America would not be in the condition we're in. That assumes a lot of poor things about the church prior to us, doesn't it? It assumes even more poor things about Jesus himself, who was crucified and put to death. If I was faithful, then I would have blessings. Not all this suffering. What did I do wrong that brought this suffering to my doorstep? Folks, we just went through a passage starting in Hebrews 11 all the way through 12.2 in which we're given a catalog of folks who endured by faith often in a variety of ways in which they suffered. Sometimes persecution, sometimes other kinds of suffering. These are people that are held up to us as examples of faith. And most explicitly, we see this in the person of Christ in Hebrews 12, 2, who suffered and was persecuted. And we don't look at Christ and say, well, if only Jesus was faithful, he wouldn't have suffered. A second way that we tend to have an unbiblical assumption in the face of persecution and suffering is this. See, Christians, we sort of have this notion that Christians should be careful to earn good reputations with the world as we're probably doing something wrong if the world slanders us. Listen to what Jesus says, for example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you. Now, we don't think of this as a blessing, but I want you to hear it. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Okay, we can sort of accept that to some degree, but this is where you have to ready yourself, because I don't think we believe the corollary to this. Ready? Woe to you, cursed are you, verse 26, when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, we think that when the world speaks well of the church, then we're blessed. And when the world opposes the church, then we're cursed. We have flipped this paradigm entirely on its head. Somehow we believe the church can be greater than her master. So John 15, verse 18, this is Jesus again. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Somewhere along the line, particularly in the last few decades, the church fell prey to this notion that we could win the world by being like the world. So we actually changed worship services dramatically, changed the way the church talked about righteousness, holiness, repentance. Repentance almost entirely departed from our discussions so that the world would feel comfortable. We don't say hard messages. We don't do things the Bible commands that seem odd to the world and not exciting and entertaining. So we can win them over. We become like the world to win the world. Here's the problem. What you win them with is what you win them to. You win the world with worldliness, you want them to worldliness. Third, we tend to think that opposition from the world only comes from hatred of the gospel message. That's a bad assumption, actually. It only comes from opposition to the gospel message, especially the gospel message coming from hypocritical Christians which you are. If you find a church without hypocrites, if you find that church, just drive on by because if you go in, you just ruined it for them. We don't actually believe that the world hates the church because the world opposes Christians who walk in godliness. Did you know that? The world hates Christians who walk in godliness. 1 Peter chapter 4. What does Peter say in verse 1? 1 Peter chapter 4 With respect to this, they, that being the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And listen to what happens. They malign you. Why do they malign you? Because you don't join in the same flood of debaucheries. They're surprised that you want to be separate from worldliness, and so they malign you. We've somehow turned loving our neighbors into being loved by our neighbors. You're commanded to, to love your neighbor. You are never commanded to be loved by your neighbor. Fourth, persecution and suffering. We somehow think that persecution and suffering only come at the hands of the world, but not really Satan and sin. Somehow we don't actually buy that there's a real spiritual war that's happening. Ephesians chapter six, who does Paul say we fight against? He actually doesn't say we fight against all those unbelievers out there. Listen to what he says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, it isn't really the unbelievers whom you oppose. It's sin in them. Persecution and suffering is coming for Christians. It is simply a part of our life as sojourners in this world, a world which wars against us. But often our instinct in the midst of persecution and suffering is only to look for means to make it stop. I want it to stop, so I'm going to look for means to make it stop when we really need to learn the means God has given to endure by faith. Now please hear me, it's not wrong to want to make it stop. It's not wrong To want relief. Jesus actually teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation or trial, but deliver us from evil. Paul teaches the church in 1 Timothy to pray for its governing authorities so that we might live in peace and godliness. We aren't gluttons for punishment, just hoping that God will somehow bring suffering to us. We're actually actively praying that he would give us relief, However, that's not the whole story. We're taught to pray for relief, but we're also taught to learn to endure by faith. So how do we endure by faith in the midst of persecution and suffering? How do we do it? Well, we need to understand that we're only prepared for the battle and well-supplied in the battle if we engage in the God-given duties and disciplines of grace. You might call the means of grace. God has given us these means of grace, these duties and disciplines of grace, for our endurance in the faith he knows that apart from these means of grace he's given we will not long endure in the battle we'll lose so today i want us to look at the discipline of grace of renewing our minds you know paul says do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds romans 12 2. today i want us to think about the renewing of our minds with the truth of god's word in other words The discipline of not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by telling ourselves the truth, by being around other believers who can tell us the truth, by sitting in the gathered corporate service or worship service so that we can be told the truth. We wanna participate in the discipline of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The discipline of meditating upon And believing the truth that we do not, please hear this, that we do not always see and feel. Don't always see it and feel it, but it's still true. So, to do so, we're gonna look at the passage here, Hebrews chapter 12, in three parts. In verses three and four, we're gonna consider Christ and his work. In verses five through eight, we're gonna remember the Father and his love. And in verses nine through 11, We're going to joyfully count suffering as a work of the Holy Spirit's transforming grace. So let's look at the first one. Let's consider Christ and his work. That's a discipline our mind needs to attend to, to consider Christ and his work. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Consider him. That's a reference to Jesus from verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, verse 2. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, in contrast to him, he endured from sinners hostility toward himself to the point of shedding his blood and dying on the cross. You have not yet. You're not martyred yet. Might come. Hasn't happened yet. The Hebrew Christians that he's speaking to here are suffering and need to learn to endure by faith. That's what he was telling them in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through verse 39. He was laying out, we know you suffered. Some of you have been in prison for the faith. Some of you have lost your goods and had your homes sacked by going and serving Christians who were imprisoned for the faith. And you have need of endurance. I have confidence about you that you're those who will believe and not shrink back. But I want to teach you what it looks like to endure in the faith and not shrink back. Let's go through the Old Testament saints and show you how they did it. Now, let's come to the example par excellence of not shrinking back but enduring Jesus Christ himself. Consider him and consider his work. To consider is to think long and hard about, to chew on it, to meditate upon it. But it's also a kind of comparative sort of meditation. Consider him who suffered such hostility against himself. He was put to death. Think about his work. Jesus was sent by the Father because we are rebellious sinners. The Father loved us and sent Christ to keep the law in our place. And though he was holy, innocent, and undefiled, though he was tempted in every way, yet without sin, the Father decreed and Jesus joyfully walked in obedience to the father to the point of death to the point of death even death on the cross so that he paid the penalty due to us for our sin he endured hostility from sinners he was persecuted mocked flogged and crucified consider him and his work compare it to yourself and your work think about it holy innocent undefiled the Lord of glory persecuted, died on the cross. You, wicked, wretched, constantly a mess, you have a little bit of suffering now and then in comparison to that. You're comparing your person to his person, and you're comparing your work to his work, and you're making the contrast. I can tell you this is incredibly helpful. It's incredibly helpful when you're suffering, when someone starts persecuting you, when folks start blaspheming Christ's church. That's the language that's used in the Greek, by the way. It's blaspheming, not only the Lord, but his church. When they start doing that, you have to stop and say, ah, man, they blaspheme my name. At the end of the day, I mean, I probably deserve every bit of it. He deserved none of it. What's interesting about the contrast, what follows, we lose some language in verse four, but in your struggle against sin, notice you're fighting against sin, verse four, you're fighting against sin by considering him. But if you look at the end of verse three, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. The ESV leaves out the very direct Greek language there that says, in your souls. The language is, so you don't fail in your souls. John Owen, talking about this, said, compute thus, here's his comment, compute thus with yourselves, that if he, being so great, so excellent, so infinitely exalted above us, yet endured such contradiction or opposition of sinners, ought we not so to do if we're called thereunto? Constant consideration of Christ and his sufferings is the best means by which we endure in faith when we are suffering." In other words, you're constantly disciplining your mind to consider Christ and his work, what we call the gospel. You're constantly disciplining your mind to consider Christ and his work. That is the best means by which we endure in faith when we're suffering. Listen, our experience as American Christians is undergoing a dramatic shift. Dramatic shift, and you all are feeling it existentially. You may or may not understand what's behind it, What you understand is that there was a time when Christians were at the center of our culture, and now that's come to an end. We've been pressed to the margins. Our faith is now seen as the enemy of the good. What's the good? The good is expressive individualism. What do I mean by that? What it says at the end of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. What is the evil if the good is doing what's right in my own eyes, expressive, individual, I'm just an individual who needs to express myself, do what pleases me, I, this is who I am. Y'all have to endorse it, okay? If that's the good, what's the evil? The evil is external moral authority. Any moral authority outside of me that binds me. Who are the victims of external moral authority in America today? The LGBTQ movement? Think of what our Bible says. The Bible says that homosexuality is not only a moral evil, but a natural evil. In other words, the Bible says that it's unnatural and offensive to a holy God. Think of transgenderism. The Bible says that God made us in his image. Male and female, he created us. The second group of victims to external moral authority are any ethnic or religious minority in America. What do I mean by that? Revisionist history that is some variety of either Marxist or post-colonial theories of history tells us that they've all been oppressed by white Christian colonizers. The original sin is whiteness, and that has been the great evil in world history. Listen, clearly some folks in the name of Christ have done wicked things in history, and clearly some folks with the same pigmentation as me and many of you have done wicked things in history. Those things are indisputably true in fact I would tell you that some folks the name of Christ and some folks with my pigmentation continue to do all sorts of wicked things like the president of the United States just signed an order the other day saying that taxpayers in America are going to be paying for abortions overseas in other countries that's a person of my skin color professing Christianity who just did something horribly wicked it's happening all the time That's true, but that is not a good accounting of history to just say, because someone of a particular pigmentation did something bad, then all people of that pigmentation are now evil. Or that because someone in the name of Christ did something bad, all people, that is a, when I say a Marxist or post-colonial theory of history, what I'm getting at is, whoever was in power is the majority, the power brokers, the oppressor, whoever is not in power is the minority, the oppressed. So we just read all history through oppressor, oppressed paradigm. And so Christians who had some ascendancy for centuries are necessarily just oppressors. Third, third victim of external moral authority are women. Especially women being told that there are actually biblical roles that God has assigned to them. And that those roles are actually ground in nature. That's oppressive. You think the world wants to hear that? oddly in the feminist movement you have to become a man to be a woman it's weird what's even odder is that the feminist movement is not yet they're starting to become but not yet that upset by the transgender movement the two of which absolutely contradict one another fourth women being told to keep their children those are the fourth victim i could name more but think about that if you're pregnant you should carry your baby to term give birth to that child, and raise that child. In our culture, to demand that by moral authority is to make you a victim of oppression. Incidentally, folks, it's not just one party that tends to believe these views. Both political parties do. Now, one party might not be into the critical race stuff, but they absolutely embrace the feminist movement and the LGBTQ movement. Both president candidates in the last term, were competing for who is the most pro-LGBTQ candidate. Both parties competed for who is the most pro-raise women into power party. It's just the water we drink now. Frankly, anyone not perceived to be in power who has been admonished by anyone in power is a victim. This is true because expressive individualism is utterly triumphant. Christianity proclaims law, objective truth, and gospel, objective truth. Christianity holds up a Bible as an external authority. Christianity says we have a creator, and we are creatures ordered by him and for him. And the world will hate us for this. They do hate us for this. So how will you endure in faith? How will you endure? If we do not constantly consider Christ and his work, we will not endure. Now, I say this because I want you to feel the existential moment that we're in. There is no political party that sees the world as Christians see the world. That's over. It's likely not going to make a comeback in any of our lifetimes. Now the Lord can bring a revival and do whatever he wants. But the fact is it's probably going to be generations and generations before you see some sort of turn there. So how do we endure in faith? How do we endure If we do not constantly consider Christ and his work, we will not endure, just won't. When you see Christian colleges and universities and Christian schools start losing accreditation, which is being asked for in the first 100 days in the Biden administration incidentally, when you see them lose accreditation unless they're willing to embrace the LGBTQ movement, you're gonna start to feel the pinch of this. When you hear the interscholastic federation start saying, unless you're willing to embrace transgenderism, your school can't participate in interscholastic sports, your children are excluded, you're going to start feeling the pinch of this, all of which is being asked for and pursued by the current administration in the first 100 days in office. If we do not constantly consider Christ and his work, we will not endure. Rather, we will grow weary and faint-hearted. We will become weak and fail in our souls. We may start the race with vigor, We may even face opposition well at first, but over time, we start to become weary in the fight. We start to become vulnerable to the suggestion that it's not worth the fight any longer. We can start to want to give up, so we must consider Christ and his work. And how do we do that? How do we consider Christ and his work? We give vigorous attention to the duties and disciplines of grace. What are the God-given duties and disciplines of grace? Hearing the word preached. Reading the word publicly. The sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Prayer singing, fellowship with the brethren. These are the means whereby we're reminded of Christ's person and sufferings, and thus the means whereby we're strengthened by the Spirit to endurance. We're told that in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us, therefore, encourage one another, not forsaking the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, But encouraging one another even more as we see the day drawing near look at there's no room for slothfulness here there is not even one minute or moment of room for laziness sin just needs to get its nose in the tent that's what concerns me about our present moment with covid by the way i am not talking about every person having this problem so don't overhear what i'm saying my concern though overall is that we fear physical death in our bodies or being called anti-science bigots, more than we fear lacking spiritual endurance and becoming weak in our souls. You may be fine for a time apart from receiving the means of grace in the gathered congregation, but do not be deceived. You will not endure in the long run. We tell you all the time, I can tell you from pastoral experience in 20 years, people who depart from the regular means of grace eventually depart from the faith. I've watched it over and over and over again. Do well for a short period of time, and then walk away. Why is that? Because we can't survive without one another gathered together, hearing the Lord Jesus speak to us and giving us grace upon grace. So consider Christ and his work. Second, remember the Father and his love. Look at Hebrews 12:5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It could also be translated, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. The ESV is using the question mark, as a kind of rhetorical question. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? But I want to pay attention to this. What's the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Look at the rest of verse 5 and then verse 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. To do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord is do not like basically sort of ignore it or pretend like it's there or treat it as a thing it's not. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, literally whips. Like, I know you don't think about that. The Lord loves me, so He whips me, right? Whips every son whom He receives. Okay? So, verse 5, I want to stop and think about this. That's a quotation of Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. That is Solomon speaking to his son. This is Solomon, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 teaching his son, as a father, teaching his son. But notice what he says here, the way the author in Hebrews addresses this. And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly discipline of the Lord. In other words, that's an Old Testament passage, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 spoken by Solomon, a man, a wise king, to his son. And the author of Hebrews says, actually, that is the father of all things, Addressing you as sons. And he's not just addressing you. That word to address is the word to argue or plead. The Father is pleading with you as sons. Pleading with you. Here's a Father pleading with you as sons. It's staggering that God would condescend to plead with us as sons. It is superabundant grace that God would condescend to plead with us as sons. It's only by the abundant grace of God that we are sons and not enemies. And what does he want us to hear? He wants us to hear, my son, here's the father speaking to you. Christian, not just Solomon speaking to his son, but the father of all things, speaking to you as a believer, even now, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, so He's going to go with a natural example analogy what father has sons he doesn't discipline and that's what the father's doing with you goes on verse eight if you are left without discipline in which all all the believers here he's talking about the church here in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons we've kind of tamped this down from the king james because of the way the word is used here but it, old english word for this is you are bastards and not sons you have no father Persecution and suffering, whether from the world, the flesh, or the devil, is the evidence. Listen to this. It is evidence that the father loves you as a son. And women, I'm talking to you as well. You're adopted as sons. Why why does that matter? Because only sons receive an inheritance. That's why you're adopted as sons. That doesn't mean God doesn't recognize that you're females. He, unlike our culture, is wholly aware of that. If you never suffer, then you are fatherless. You hear that? If you're never persecuted, then you're fatherless. In other words, I want you to hear this. If you're living your best life now, then you're a bastard and not a son. There's two errors to avoid here. You are not necessarily suffering because of a particular sin in you. Let's avoid that error. You are not necessarily suffering the discipline of the Lord because of a particular sin in you. We know that from the story of Job, for example. Job's suffering isn't regarding a particular sin. We know that from the life of Paul, who suffers not because he's participating in a particular sin, but merely because he's growing in godliness and preaching the gospel. We know that most expressly because Christ suffers and he has no sin. Let me give you a second caution here. You're always needing discipline. Here's the flip side of it. You are always needing discipline due to your sin in general. So while you may not be suffering God's discipline due to a particular sin, you're always needing discipline due to your sin in general. There is always sin remaining in you that the Father is graciously driving out of you. 1 Peter chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, just listen. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're grieved by them. That is obvious. Now listen, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Father is putting you through trials to purify you for your good and his glory. Our suffering may look arbitrary and cruel. It may seem unjust and unhelpful. But the Father is working for our good, even if we don't understand how. We must remember that discipline means he loves us as sons if we want to persevere. So maybe I should give you this little caution. As you're watching the relentless 24-hour news cycle, hearing that everything that happens in the world is so important to you, most of it is not, and constantly letting your eyes stream across social media seeing all the horrible things that are happening all around you. Maybe next time you see, let's say, the Equality Act or The Do No Harm Act, which are direct attacks on Christianity, come to law. When you see those and you think the church is going to be persecuted and suffer, you need to see that act as the Father's giving you evidence that he loves you as a son. He loves his church. And he will purify us. Don't just receive it as bad news. It's not good news. I'm not saying you should look at it and go, oh, awesome, persecution's coming. I'm so excited about that. You shouldn't. You should pray it doesn't. But when it comes... You should see it as an evidence of the Father's love for you, that he's purifying his church, his people, for our good. We must remember that discipline means he loves us as sons, even if we want to persevere. Let me get to the third point and try to wrap up. We don't just need to consider Christ and his work and remember the Father loves us. We also need to joyfully count suffering as a work of the Holy Spirit's transforming grace. Look at chapter 12 and verse 9. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Why is he called the Father of Spirits? It's a contrast with earthly fathers. You have these earthly fathers and you have the Father of Spirits. The earthly fathers disciplined you as it seemed best to them. You respected them for that. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For, verse 10, they disciplined us. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, our Heavenly Father, the Father of Spirits, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. I just want you to hear the contrast. We, all men, tend to pursue that which they think is good, which they believe is good. We're not always right about what is good, but we pursue that which we believe is good. You go back to Aristotle, hear that, even ungodly pagans knew that. We tend to pursue that which we believe is good. So as fathers, earthly, worldly fathers, we discipline our children in a manner that we believe is for their good. We don't always get that right. Sometimes our discipline is off. And if you've been a parent, you remember the times where you disciplined a kid when you shouldn't have, when you disciplined in a manner that was ungodly. You remember. And if you're a child, you remember when your parents <laughs> did it too. So, but the fact is, parents are trying to wisely lead their children toward the good that doesn't mean they're always getting it right the father in heaven is always getting it right always always so that we may share in his holiness verse 11 for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant isn't that true this is why James will come to you and say count it all pure joy when you face sufferings of various kinds or trials of various kinds James point isn't You should be facing that suffering going, oh, I love suffering. That's not his point. He knows you recognize it's unpleasant. That's why he has to tell you to consider or count it something that you don't feel that it is. You're telling yourself the truth about it rather than listening to yourself with regard to the lies you tell yourself with regard to it. It's painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it note this suffering sanctifies those who are trained by it suffering is not a badge of honor or merit in and of itself you do not have a more virtuous voice because you suffered you don't you're only made holy by suffering when you're trained by it and if you are God's son then you will be trained by it then you will that's why I said we must joyfully count our suffering as the Holy Spirit's transforming work. We're to count it all as joy when we're being transformed. Why? Because God is making us more godly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he superabounds with joy and suffering. That's an odd statement, right? When I suffer, I superabound in joy. Paul and James didn't naturally enjoy suffering. You only have to slow down and consider or count it as joy when your general sense experience tells you it's painful and hard. But they knew that by the good decree of the Father, the Holy Spirit was at work in them to make them more like Christ. That's what they knew. You count it all joy because it delivers holiness. It delivers the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And who is the one who does that work? The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's the one doing that work. I think a reason we don't consider training us through suffering the good work of a loving Father is because we do not really value being made in the image of Christ as our highest good. Do you really believe that being made into the image of Christ, holy and righteous, is your highest good? Or do you spend so much time meditating on the goods of this life that somehow relief from the loss of those goods and recapturing of those goods, that's the highest good? So God's at work in me. God is working all things together for the good, and I then put in parenthetical comments, the good is that I'd be relieved from suffering and that I would recapture the goods of this life. That's not what the text is talking about. That's not the good. The good is to be like Christ. Do we believe that? Look at Romans chapter 8. I think we don't really believe Romans 8.18, so we don't believe Romans 8.28. What do I mean by that? Look at what it says in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us or in us. You hear that? Here's what Paul's saying. If I put the sufferings of this present time, no matter how hard and how difficult, on one side of the scale, and then I put the glory of God that's to be revealed to us on the other side of the scale, the sufferings don't even have weight. The scale is absolutely, utterly tipped entirely toward the glory of God. I consider, I count, I have meditated upon, I believe, I affirm, I tell myself, though I don't feel it to be true, I tell myself constantly meditating upon the fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If I believe that, then Romans 8.28 makes a lot more sense, and we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. What's the good? The glory to be revealed in us. How do I know that? For those who are called according to his purpose, look at verse 29. It's going to tell you the good right here. For those whom he foreknew, in other words, whom he set his love upon, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What did God predestine you for? To be conformed to the image of his Son. What's your good? To be like Christ. And what does he go on to say? In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The preeminent one. Have the supremacy among many brothers. So what's your encouragement in suffering and persecution? How do you endure in faith? You consider Christ and his work for you. You remember that he was given by the Father who loves you and disciplines you for your good. You count it joy as the Holy Spirit is working through all this to make you more like Christ. It's not easy. I don't want you to get the wrong understanding. I'm not saying this is easy. It's simple, but it's hard. We do not often understand what the Lord is doing. Almost never really understand what the Lord is doing. But we do know he loves us and is working for our good. We do know that. Did you hear the words of William Cooper? William Cooper a man who suffered greatly, particularly from depression, was hospitalized more than once for it, pastored some by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. William Cooper was a great writer of hymns that we sing to this day. Listen to what he says. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace that we know in your Son because of your great love for us. We pray that we would receive that grace with thanksgiving. We pray that we would diligently consider Christ and his work on our behalf, his suffering in our place. Pray that we would remember in the midst of suffering that you love us. That's proof of your love as you discipline us for our good, and we pray that we would joyfully count suffering as the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, making us more like Christ, which is our good. We know we need grace, the work of your Holy Spirit, to do any of this. So we pray you would give him in great measure, in Jesus' name, amen.